the Get There. I'm your host, John Penn. I uh, appreciate you being with me today and I uh, hope you're enjoying your holidays, whichever those may be. Today on the show is legendary uh, Canadian broadcaster George Shambalopoulos. I think what's interesting about George, I mean, there are several things, but one thing is that he really has a footprint in so many different areas of, of really media. I mean, I guess, I guess that's the umbrella. I guess that's the umbrella. I mean, from television to radio, hosting shows, um, interviewing. And then there's, of course, the philanthropy, which is incredible. Great work with the World Food Program. And we talked about that. That's kind of what we started out kind of talking about. And then we, we kind of drifted towards, you know, a discussion about punk and about music and kind of what's, <laughs> what's real, what's the state of the culture now. The bands that influenced how he looked at music and looks at music to this day. And then that other element of, you know, of interviewing and being a talk show host uh, and being really engaged and having a really unique style. And that he really cultivated that over, you know, the 10 years that he was hosting The Hour, uh, formerly The Hour, which which became George Schramblavos Tonight. You, you see that, man. Like, there's there's no one else like him. It was such a great, you know, pleasure to talk to him. Uh, he's the host of the Apple Music radio show Strombo, which is heard in over 160 countries. And he's also the curator for Strombo's Lit for Apple Books. You can hear Strombo every Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern with your Apple Music subscription. Oh, and Immortal Technique came up too. Um, well, thanks for being here. I really appreciate, uh, you know, getting the opportunity to talk to you. So we we just had, um, so kind of as we start, we just had a scheduling issue. So when when you came on and you saw that I wasn't here, what did you think? Like, did you think, uh, you must have thought I, like, who the, who the hell does this guy think he is, right? Oh, no, no. You know, I just thought that I just assumed something either came up or you were yeah. doing previous conversation or I got the time zones wrong. I wasn't yeah. sure what it was. So we just kind of, yeah, it was, I didn't think too much except that we'll sort it. That's kind of what I thought. Yeah. You didn't uh, think like, oh, he's trying to be like punk rock or something. No, <laughs> no, no. Because punk, because being like not showing up isn't punk rock. So I didn't think. Yeah. It would be that. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think is punk rock when you think about that? Because is it, a, is punk a genre or is it more of a, like a sensibility? I think it's both those things. I think um, that's one of the magics of the genre itself is that it can be lots of things to different people, right? I actually think that for some, punk is um, just an artistic expression uh, of independence. For others, it's truly just about not listening to authority. Yeah. Uh, for others, it's about social responsibility. And I think that there's no one way to define punk. And I think it really comes down to, are you connected to the early art queer punk scene from new york yeah. are you connected to the uh political garbage strike punk rock of the uk right. are you connected to the anarchy of yeah. southern california mm. you know the tsol crowd or are you connected to the washington dc hardcore which is a little element of, of a lot of that and and so i think it really comes down to where your punk introduction started and yeah. and what your punk values are that dc so that would be like the bad brains probably that bad brains and then leading bad brains and then leading to uh what ian mckay did with minor threat and F discord mm. records and fugazi yeah fugazi yeah those yeah. are some good dc bands oh totally i, I want to talk about that but um kind of as we start i wanted to uh 
I, I was at so I was at a um this kind of global warming sort of climate change panel yesterday. Uh, I wasn't speaking in it or anything. I was just kind of there, and uh, they were kind of talking about the COP twenty seven, the um you know that event that just happened in November, and the world there was a there was a food and ag agriculture person there, and the world um food program came up, and that's something that you've been involved with for a while right i mean it's been over i guess over a decade you're yeah. you're canada's first goodwill ambassador so what what led you to get involved in that and how was uh syria because you, you you were there kind of recently right just there. yeah i was just i just got back from syria yeah it was uh it was really wonderful to be there well that's my you know my my definition of punk is yeah. being um is use your use your microphone to make things better right and and to do it in a variety of ways and one of the ways for me is the world food program i was lucky enough to be asked to be a part of that organization i think you're right it's been over 10 years i think it's been 12 i can't even remember yeah. but, but um <clears throat> i just think that you have to do good things with your opportunities and yeah. you have to do what fits for you and for me these kind of global fights are really important and i'm an immigrant or yeah. I'm a child of immigrants i'm the first person in my media family born in canada so um for me the world isn't just my city the world is the world so it's my job as a person to do good to do what i can anyway to try to make it a little bit better so that's what got me and that's why i was really interested in being a part of the world food program yeah. um and syria is incredible you're talking about the cradle of civilization right one of those countries it's one of the oldest continuous um inhabited places uh being in aleppo the old city of aleppo the old city of damascus is yeah absolutely mind-blowing flying over it it's a no-fly zone we still flew over it it was pretty wow pretty magical man and it's a yeah it's a place that has suffered enormously and and has suffered enormously for a long time yeah and so i just wanted to go there and um and, and knowing that we could we could shine a light on some of the work that's being done there and the, and the global need for action yeah and yeah the need for global action so that's uh, that was one of the reasons why i really wanted to go yeah, that's one of the kind of double-edged swords of the pandemic because we, I mean, the food shortage and the hunger um, sort of prepotence that we see in a lot of third world countries and then both of our countries too. I mean, we see that in the US and Canada, but especially over there where they really don't have not just the resources, but not even a platform to cast light on those resources. So I think it's great that you're able to kind of take advantage of that in terms of shedding a light on those, you know, really important causes. But then, um, yeah, I think it's really kind of, yeah it is it's that's why it's so hard to figure out who to blame right like well i mean that's the thing you that, that well that's a, it's an interesting question because there are lots of people who you can blame and lots of um, yeah. um you know countries and there's a lot of people who are interfering and have for a long time in syria but what i like about the world food program is that it's not really about that's not our purview we don't it's not about blame it's about help so we we go into places that are complex and difficult to be yeah. in and difficult to explain and there are sanctions and there are you know dictators and there are lots of things in different countries around the world that right yeah. every country has got their thing and so we go to places where a lot of people don't know how to go in and do it and the world food program has a lot of institutional knowledge and there's a lot of effective work being done there and it's constantly changing and growing um and it's it's yeah i mean look you can always blame imperialism <laughs> right yeah. like you can always yeah. blame that for a lot but that that's not specific to syria that's just in general um and i i just think it's really important to not be over to not be frozen yeah by the fact that it's complex and you right. can feel exactly. it's, it's irrelevant you just have to go do it 
You have to do it. What's that line that says, if you want to water roses, you'll also water thorns. And Oh, I don't know that one. Interesting. And it's, you know, you just got to go do things. And that's, that's my wiring. So it's, it was a perfect fit, you know, to be a part of the world food program. And I was really thrilled that they won the the Nobel peace prize because the people who work at the world food program, they are in it, man. They are really working. I'm really, yeah, I'm really lucky to be a part of that group. Yeah, no, a big one. You got to be in it, I guess, if you're involved with such a heavy, you know, cause like that in terms of your, um, because we were kind of talking about punk a little bit, but where you grew up in Canada the whole, the whole time, really? Toronto. Yeah. I grew up in Toronto. What was, what was that experience? I mean, what did your uh, like family do for work and stuff? Toronto's dope, man. Um, I grew up on the West side, so I didn't grow up in the kind of Canada that you see reflected on TV or in lore. I didn't grow up in the Mounties nature Canada, you know, I didn't grow up. I didn't grow up in that. I grew up in a in a super immigrant West Side bunch of neighborhoods that were rough, but also community. Um, mm. And my mom was, you know, my earliest memory of her, she was a waitress and she also delivered newspapers. She worked yeah. in as fry in you know fry kitchens as a as just wow. like making shitty food for yeah. people. She also uh, put herself through nursing school to become a nurse's assistant oh, wow. um, and then got got to work in the medical field. Yeah, <clears throat> doing that. And then she helped assign nurses to home care. So that was what I grew up in. I was raised by my mom. So that's the, yeah. I, I wasn't raised by my father. Yeah, me um, too. I don't know. My dad lived, when my dad was still with us, he worked at the Ford plant. He worked on the assembly line. Mm. I know that. Uh, my uncle was then and still is. Uh, he works on a golf course on the grounds. Like, you know, getting it together, pretty much everybody in my family, I think with the exception of me at one point worked on a golf course, either in the kitchen or cleaning or chopping down trees or whatever. So we come from a very, very blue collar family, very blue collar family. Um, uh, that's how I grew up. You didn't, how come you didn't do that? Like you you never uh, like I, worked I, on the golf course or whatever? No, you know what I did? I worked at a movie theater as an usher, but I drove a forklift mm. at the airport. So I, okay. I worked like, like my mom, I worked at a, at a sandwich shop making sandwiches uh for people but i also yeah. worked uh, at a at the airport unloading airplane containers for a cargo company so yeah. i put on the and, and the steel toe boots and i go to work but i also worked in bookstores and movie theaters and uh and so that was my path did you see a bunch of cool like movies i saw all of them bro i yeah. was there the day i was there the day die hard opened and oh, i wow. sat, as a teenager i sat in the back and watched die hard and midnight run and all these yeah with tom hanks all these movies yeah, yeah. They all opened when during my run, my seven-year run as a movie theater usher, when I was putting myself through uh, radio college. Wow, that's awesome, man. Well, you were talking about um, that Ford plant, you know, where your dad worked. I mean, that's that's kind of responsible for a lot of music, too. I mean, Detroit, I guess Detroit's really close to Canada, right? I mean, it's only like a couple hours drive. Then you have all these um, immigrants coming in, and they got, they're like all working, you know, to make cars really for the world at that time. And they all, they all had their music kind of blaring. And it just keeps spreading and spreading, you know. My dad, um, my, but that's, dad, my dad was Jimi Hendrix and Albert King and, <laughs> and yeah. Van Halen and wow. Joe Cocker. You know, my mom yeah. was Jim Reeves and Elvis Presley and Conway okay. Twitty. And so, yeah, I grew up around and you know and and Patsy, of course. So I grew up around some pretty killer music. But I'm 50, right? So I was five years old essentially when punk and metal really got going. Like, I mean, I know yeah. Sabbath, but. But even Sabbath by the late 70s with Ozzy, when they were they were starting to be like, they were amazing. Right. But it, late from five to 15, from when I was those 10 years, it was punk metal because the, the Bay Area thrash scene hit Venom. Oh, yeah. 
the new wave of British heavy metal priests right. made, um, and then uh, and hip hop. So it all started in these really formative years of my life. Yeah. And because my mom and dad were young, like my dad, my mom and dad were teenagers, I think, 19, 20 years old when I when I showed up. So wow. so my my parents were kids and I was a kid. They were kids. And the music of kids back then was cool. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, I didn't listen to children's music growing yeah. up. I listened yeah. to Hendrix yeah. and Zeppelin. You know, there was no like, oh, now we're going to do this. No, it was yeah. always the most badass music in the world. I feel like you need that, man. Um, I had that. I had that with music, but I, I probably had that more with movies. Yeah, like I know that. Uh, I went. I went to like see. Um, I went to a friend's house, and he was like, his family was kind of like loaded. He had a he had a nice like huge screen, and um, it was it was basically like a theater. I remember we went to Blockbuster, like figuring out like what to get, and I wanted to get American Gangster. That was out at the time, and then he he was like, oh, you know, my family's not gonna let me get that. It's like, man, you yeah. have this huge theater, you can't watch what you want. My mom yeah. didn't give a shit about that at all. Like she, uh, we used to see. I mean, she she's responsible for me seeing a lot of films like all those larry clark films that i saw when i was like a little kid wow. um so i'm, I'm grateful I would for that. See my mom my mom was super religious so she wouldn't let me see that mm. stuff but my yeah. uncle would take me to when i was 12 he would take me to independent theaters to watch independent russian movies and oh, and wow. european films so i i was i got to see some really great indie cinema when i was 12 that's why i got a job at a movie theater and why i ultimately started making films because to me cinema and music were completely connected in our yeah. era it was really about counterculture and independent expression and yeah. uh and so to me they're 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 hyper connected i mean if you look at penelope spheris's all her you know western so i mean that is a yeah a clear example of that like music and film inform each other but when yeah. you're when you're kind of growing up i mean you're exposed to all this really cool music um you have this really unique upbringing do you have siblings too or is it, is it just I have you? a younger sister you have a younger sister yeah. What what is she what is she kind of was she kind of with you in terms of getting her mind blown by all this music and you know all the films and stuff? Yeah, she was a little young for the for the films, but the music for sure. My sister has amazing taste in music. Um and so yeah, definitely, you know, that that you know, she's a, a few years younger than me, so the 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 early 90s, like the grunge explosion yeah. was really her era. So um so that was when she really kind of like connected to a lot of what was happening musically. Is grunge like this is why I kind of have a hard time with genre. I mean, is grunge really an extension of punk? Is it something wholly different? I mean, how do you how do you kind of because you did that you did that 30th anniversary of Nevermind. You had a special on that on your show. I mean, do you th where do you think that that all that stuff kind of fits in, um, you know, especially with Nirvana, I guess, R.E.M. a little bit before. And then I guess what eventually led to, you know, Alice in Chains and Stone Temple Pilots like a little bit later. I mean, how does that fit in? I think that grunge was post post. Well, no, I think that Nirvana was post post punk. So yeah. that, you know, they out of the punk era, you get into the replacements era, the Pixies, you know, that and, and wire. So you yeah. get those bands wire first, of course. So those bands created a space that um, I think Minutemen that yeah. Nirvana comes out of. Right. Yeah. And and I think that. While Nirvana has a lot of the similarities of your Pearl Jams and your Soundgardens, I actually think Soundgarden was more bluesy and Sabbathy, and Pearl Jam was more Neil Youngy. And and but the yeah, but the, that's true. The thread between the three were Zeppelin and and oh, the Clash, yeah. the Pistols. Um, so, and of course Dave Grohl's love of disco drumming and and that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. So I think that grunge isn't one thing. Um, and 
we just call it grunge is really less about a genre of music and more about an era i think mm-hmm. and the and fashions of course always tied into yeah. it as a punk um vivian westwood mad respect so yeah. i think that i think that nirvana was a very very different band than soundgarden and they were a very different band from pearl jam and those were the big three and they were all very different bands from stp like people forget that when core first came out people tried tried to dismiss stone temple pilots as a mm. pearl jam knockoff band oh really but yeah because there was like you know yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. cool. but very quickly people realized holy shit scott wyland is one of the best front people yeah. in the world um and those songwriters are incredible so they were very yeah. different then remember radiohead yeah. shortly after so so our era was very very different for all these bands like no one called radiohead grunge but they were with those bands they were kind of lumped in with like blur and oasis right well, well, I think Radiohead, you know, I remember playing Creep on the Radiohead, Radio yeah. 93, Oasis and Blur, maybe a year later or so, yeah. North America-wise. And, and but I, I Radiohead, I don't think, whenever Britpop, they were more, to me, they were extensions of, if Beethoven was a Pixies fan, get Radiohead, you know, kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I, I found them to be very... But but that was the range of music. I Listen, I, I'm a huge believer in diverse music tastes. Yeah. So in in my era, I'm not sure how old you were, but in my era. I'm 29. We, you're 29. We were very diverse. Right now, things are pretty homogenous. And yeah. they were not like that when we were, when I was 20 years old. When I was 20 years old, man, we were listening to all kinds of stuff. And our biggest yeah. band in the same genres, genre in quotes, air quotes, yeah. were all pretty different. How do you mean homogenous now? People listen to one, one and a half genres of music. Oh, okay. And, and by yeah. the way, in that one and a half genres of music, it's the same fucking hi hat. It's yeah. the same, and they're doing each other's. No, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's homogenous. Yeah. You don't have you don't have the same kind of. Um, you just take a look at the. You take a look at each city. You look at the streaming numbers. You take a look right. at what is considered alternative. It's all very very similar. It's the same three or four artists that are kind yeah. of across all this stuff but it's not as diverse as you think now there's plenty of diverse music happening in this era and for this generation sure. generations but it's not the mainstream whereas yeah. the, what i'm talking about is that was the mainstream the mainstream yeah. radio had in nine inch nails you were still getting yeah. ministry you were getting pj harvey and hole and you were yeah. getting nirvana then you were yeah. getting called quest and de la soul yeah. and we were seeing all those shows brand newbie and we were seeing all the and then Gangstar, Erica, yeah. yeah and gangstar like guru yeah. and uh, and primo and then we yeah. had Lauren Hill and, and oh and, yeah and Nas like, yeah Nas yeah Nas a bit for sure Godson was later yeah. but I mean yeah 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 and then Pac and Biggie and yeah. and and then the West Coast shit was happening with the G Funk which was introducing everybody to the P Funk and Dog all that stuff yeah yeah I mean Nate Dog was on every record for about eighteen months right yeah. um, so like that was so we were seeing all those shows. All genres. It was a very, very, very diverse situation. We weren't very much into the mimic culture. And social media has created a lot of um, mimic. It's created a lot. Let me do a version of what you're doing. Derivatives, yeah. Yeah, think about TikTok. Like a big part of it in the early days was lip syncing to other people's bits, Mm. which is not bad. I'm not knocking it, but it's a mimic culture. It's a mimic era. Again, there's value in it. I'm not saying it's bad. But but we were called the creator era. But... Oh, is that it, right? <laughs> yeah, there's lots of creators. It's yeah. just that the rest of it is just versions of that. So I, I found it really fascinating um, to see how social media started off as really amazing individual expression, but through algorithms and just the natural people are busy, so they don't really just create all that stuff. Mm. 
there's just a lot of you know versions out, right? Yeah. It's important for me to say, I don't think it's bad. I think it's yeah. just very different. How do you feel about social? I mean, are you like pretty active on on social stuff? Yeah, or not, I'm, not I'm, I'm, re- I'm really active on it, but I yeah. I, I, I don't. Um, I, I subscribe don't, by it all the time. I, I suspect if I didn't do this for a living, I would be on it less. Yeah. But it's, I think, an important component to my industry. Um, but I know I, I, I know what social media is. Like, I yeah. understand the assignment. Right. It is. So I don't get caught up in it. I, if I see other people doing really great and looking great on social media, it's not, yeah. I don't use it to feel badly about myself. <laughs> That's healthy. Yeah. I'm not, it, social media doesn't make me feel badly about myself. Yeah. Right. It's because I have a strong sense of self because sure. I did the work. You got to yeah. do the work. Right. Yeah. Um, also, I'm a grown ass person. Like, I'm a grown ass person. <laughs> yeah. If as somebody on social media does something that ruins my day, that is my fucking fault. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that so because I'm not letting anybody have power over me in that respect. Mm-hmm. It, like there's lots of class war things that are bad they have power over us but i'm talking about a post if i see a bunch of really healthy people i don't feel badly that they're in better shape than i am i ate the potato chips i know the choice i made right so so i'm just saying that this is my world i don't think that how it worked how i feel about it should is how everybody should feel about it because how i feel about it is connected to my brain chemistry and my upbringing and my and my usage of the platforms so i don't think social media is bad i don't think social media is good i think it it reflects people and people are all those things and i think there's a great black sabbath record called mob rules Mm. the best one without ozzy i believe it was ronnie james deal and mob rules is who we are you get a bunch of people together you'll see who they are and the mob and that's what social media often is it's not always bad it's not always good it's just it's a reflection of who we are when people say social media is not real that's not true. Yeah, no, it's real. It's real. They're it's real. People. They're people. Maybe not always the users, but the people who designed it, the people who run it, the people who yeah. determine who they're going to censor. Like that's all craziness. So I know what it is in my mind, and I and I'm kind of letting it, and I sort of experience it that way. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that I think that's that makes sense. So then, in terms of um, just kind of going back a little bit, um, you know, so radio. I mean, what did that interest kind of begin? Was that rooted? in the music i mean did you kind of did you hear that and see that you wanted to be involved with it somehow like help shape kind of what other people would listen to or what was that interest how did that begin i didn't even know you could do it to be honest yeah. with you but i grew up in toronto and in right. the era that i grew up there were two specific radio stations one was called q107 which was more rock and one was called the edge which cfny which mm-hmm. was more cfny which later became the edge that was a little bit more alternative um yeah and a little bit more interesting in terms of its musical uh, diversity. But both those stations had really strong footholds in youth culture. Both those stations were very progressive and both those stations actually challenged their audience in their city to be better and more interesting. So I grew up listening to radio at that time. I was working at a movie theater thinking I was going to become a filmmaker. And then at Mm -hmm. some point I went to go get a motorcycle license and I saw that when, you know, I got the course calendar at the adult. Yeah. Yeah. Humber College, and I looked at the course calendar, and I saw radio in there, and I went, "Oh shit! I didn't even know you could do it. I guess I'll do that." That's all I did. So I applied for radio because I did want to share music, and I did want to share ideas. I didn't think I was going to be a part of shaping of anything. It's not what I—I yeah. I didn't see the world that way. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't—I didn't believe that I would ever be a person that I could. Um, and I, but I did know that the way I heard music was particular. And the way yeah. I 
experienced films were particular. So I thought that, and I was political, I was socially active and I was engaged in the wars of our time because of punk rock that I listened to. So yeah. like I, listened, I was very active in that, in my mind. I used to write letters to the government when I was 13, like I'm oh, wow. that guy. And, and radio just seemed like a good fit for all of that. But even when I got into radio, I didn't know what it, what it could become. Right. It just sort of happened. But music was the, the real driving force. And to me, the sharing of music is one of the great joys in life. Yeah, no, definitely. So then you go to the radio college. Yeah. What? So what? did you have a good experience? I mean, you were there for a while, like you said, six years. I mean, that's a long time. So what are oh, you? Oh, no, no. Two years. Two years. Oh, of two school. years. Okay. Yeah, okay. Two, yeah, two years. Yeah. Seven years in the movie theater. Okay. Um, uh, two years of uh, yeah, community college. Yeah. You know, I didn't, it, the experience was fine. I didn't really try that hard the first okay. six months or so. Yeah. And then like, I just was like, whatever, I was still coming. You know, I came out of high school. I joined the army. I didn't really do anything. And then, and then the, the, the militia. And then uh, I was like, ah, I go to radio college. So I hadn't quite yet committed to the fact that I needed to, to put the work in hmm. somewhere midway through, I think my first year, I decided I was going to put the work in and I was going to start to try. I don't even know how that happened, but I remember it happening. I remember being there going, I should probably try. I don't know where that came from. Um, and I started to try and I, and I really got an awful lot out of the experience. You know, it was the, the, uh, it was called Humber college in Toronto and it was yeah. right next to the movie theater that I worked at, uh, and around the corner, just around the corner from the, uh, where I lived. And I bought this, you know, beat up old motorcycle for $300 and I would just ride, drive to work eight, 12 months a year through those snowstorms, ride my motor. I couldn't afford a car. So I would yeah. ride my motorcycle to school and to work. And I would sometimes, the weather would be so bad I couldn't get home. So I would just uh, sleep in the playground or in the hallways of the shopping mall where I worked. Um, Man. Wait for the next day and I'd get That's up. Normally. And yeah. And I would wake up in my uniform from work and I would go to school in my uniform. Um, uh, and I would, because I just couldn't get, I couldn't get home, but that was just, that was my life. And, and so that, that college experience was really fun. Like it was really fun. I really had a good time there. Um, and then, you know, because college radio is pretty powerful. Not yeah. college radio in Canada is not the same thing as college radio in the U.S. as okay. an industry, uh -huh. but but there's a lot of value in it, and we had a lot of freedom, and I really enjoyed that. Do you feel like that freedom has kind of continued? I mean, my assumption is that it is just as an audience member. Like when I see an interview of yours, when I see you on the show, like do you feel like throughout? All the shows, um, your radio show, you know, now Strombo on Apple, on Apple Music. I mean, do you feel like that? But then also the the talk shows and, and you know, the stuff that you kind of host. I mean, do you feel like you're able to retain that creativity, the originality, the same drive that inspired you to, you know, go into radio in the first place, for instance? Yeah, a lot of it, to be honest with you. I've had a yeah. very unique and, and, and a very special, a lucky, a lucky career, right, that I have been able to kind of uh, become me. Yeah. Uh, for for a living, right? I, I I put work into my values, and I put work into the craft of the broadcasting side of it. But yeah, I mean, not look, not not like college radio freedom. You still you work for people, and you have to do the thing they want you to do. But yeah. I find I've, I've I've found that I've been able to kind of um, steer a lot of it in a direction that I felt comfortable with that worked with my values. Not always, and those situations tend to not work out well. But but quite a bit, yeah. Also, I think you know because I come from the era where we were expected to be about something. Mm. My bosses would not have put me on the air if I was wasn't about. You have to be about something. I never set out to have profile. I didn't care about that. I still don't. Yeah. I didn't 
set out to be famous. I didn't set out for billboards. I didn't care. I didn't set out to be a brand. I'm not a brand. I'm a human being who has values. And I find different ways of expressing those values for the audience and for me through whatever it is, music or film or politics or, or activism or whatever. But I didn't set out to be a brand. I don't, I didn't want to be a guy that could sell ads. You know, Um, I didn't want to be a guy that's paid partnerships. I recognize that I have to do it not the paid partnerships part. I realize that I have to work for corporations because they spent, they, they're the ones who pay me. Right. But, but I came by it this way. I didn't come by it that way. I didn't come out, set out to be a brand. I just did the things that felt right. And that's where, that that's how I got to this place. So then after college, do you go to one of those two radio stations? Is that like your first kind of gig? No, that they were hard to get into. So after college, during college, this guy where I was in school with built an illegal radio transmitter. So we had a, I had a pirate radio show first. Then I went to okay. BC. I went to British Columbia, a small town, to work at a rock station there. Mm-hmm. Then in Toronto, they launched a sports talk radio station. I went to work there. Then The Edge called me and offered me wow. a job. But that was about six years into my career, five years and six years into my career. And then I only did that for about three full time before I got a job in TV. I got asked to go work for a music video channel, but I did work for three years. And then I went back to that rock station, The Edge, and I did a bunch of other other years doing specials for them. So I continued to work for them for a long, long time. So I was lucky to do that. I did get offered a job at Q107, my dream radio station, but but it was changing and it wasn't the place I wanted to be anymore. And I think that was a really important part of my career was realizing that I did at one point want to work there. But it had changed and I had changed and I was at the right spot for me. So then as you're kind of going through all these different radio stations and experiences, is that kind of your, is your goal to basically like be kind of a journeyman radio personality? Or do you kind of think about like, I don't know if the next level is right, I would say, but just a different way to express yourself and what you wanted to do in terms of, you know, creativity and also broadcasting. Did you feel like the next step would be to get on television at some point? Never thought it. Never thought yeah. it, you know. To be honest with you, dude, the, I would say the first maybe 15 years of my career, I didn't think about any of that. Yeah. I, I I knew that I wanted to have better audience sizes and more money, and I knew to do that you had to get different time slots, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I it didn't even – I just didn't approach it that way. And I, I'm very strategic, but I'm not – like I'm very aware of the fact that being in the moment and doing the job at hand is kind of the the thing. It's crucial yeah. to not be too distracted by other stuff. The older I got, the more I learned how to compartmentalize and figure it all out. But at the time, I didn't know. So I didn't really think about next steps. And when I first got offered TV, I it was never really part of my thinking. I was like, I don't really want to be on TV. I didn't watch like I didn't watch music video television. I didn't it wasn't part of my mindset. Yeah. Plus, I didn't think they're going to put a punk rock metal dude like me on TV. There was no chance. So I was <laughs> surprised at anybody when I got offered that. But my love of music is uh, eternal. And I think that is what what carried me, you know, is why they reached out. Because they're like, this guy loves music. And because I worked in sports and I'd interviewed athletes and yeah. uh, I'd interviewed lots of musicians, they needed an interviewer before I was an interviewer, you know. And then right. I just on that spot. Was so it- I'm very was it a big uh was it a big transition going from radio to kind of tv or no no not for, i mean i suspect it would be but it wasn't for me in my mind i was very comfortable on television i think when they saw me on tv the first time they i was remember being asked they're like have you so how long have you done this I'm like like four minutes ago was my first you know yeah. 
I think that kind of surprised some people. I'm not, I was, I'm not saying I was good. I wasn't good, but I was just comfortable. Right. I like, I know who I am and I'm very comfortable in my own skin. And I feel like I have been for a long time, maybe as long as I can remember. So I, I just didn't worry about, and maybe it's because, you know, the music I listened to wasn't about being popular. Mm. You know, the, the, the kind of validation that I, required early in my career was not about being liked it was about being respected and because the music that i liked it was about being respected for your values and so i put the work in to make sure that i was respected you know and as a result you were liked because in that era people wanted you to be smart and even though i wasn't educated or the but i was you know plugged into the world because i cared yeah. and that was and that was the music that got me into that or that really sort of helped me nurture that shape it forge it, I guess is more accurate. And um, so I never really worried about that other shit because I just figured that other shit would come or it didn't or right. it wouldn't. It doesn't matter, you know. Now, you know, the older you get and the more you entrenched in the life you become, you start to become a little bit more strategic and you think about next steps and what are the sure. ways strategic. That certainly entered into my thinking, you know, later in my career, but it wasn't a part of it for the beginning. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, yeah, I feel like you probably have to have that. And maybe you just innately do like the sense of credibility and authenticity, because I definitely see, I mean, that, again, not to talk about like brand or anything, but I feel like one of your differentiators is this like sense of engagement. Like when you're with a guest, it's almost, it's kind of like, um, I don't know if you listen to jazz, but like sometimes when I'm listening to jazz, like I feel like I'm so in the zone that it's, it's almost like it's that heroin slouch, you know, it's like yeah. nothing can kind of break that up. I, I certainly like got that. that. I certainly got that smack slouch. I got that for sure. <laughs> you know what it yeah. is for me? It's George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic. And everything comes back okay. to George Clinton in my life. The, he said a long time ago, um, I need you on the one. Mm. Two to four is your business. I need you on the one. So yeah. I, 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 when I do interviews and I do all this other stuff, and as I was building my career, I thought I can go be as out, out there as I wanted from two to four, but get back on the one. Be on that beat. Mm. Come back yeah. to the one. So I built a lot of that around. So my interviews seemed very casual and I was very engaged, you know, and I, I was very like laid back and created a space where people could be, but I was very, I was very much on the beat. Right. Yeah. And that was the key. And the, the thing is that the audience, the people watching, you don't want them to notice yeah. that you're on the beat until afterwards, until afterwards, they're going to be like, wow, that really worked. Like almost like a callback, like that yeah. comics kind of do on stage. Yeah, it's like, you know, you're doing your thing and all of a sudden you you take them on this journey and everybody's watching it going, what are they on about now? And then boom, yeah. when you go, oh, that's what I'm here for, right? So, so it's, you know, it's like what you're doing now and what you do in your life. This is about a craft and you have to work really hard at the craft of it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have any like inherent natural ability. I have no reason to be in this business. There's nobody in my family in this business. Nobody in my yeah. family had a career. We have jobs, right? And, and so- I, I come from a below the poverty line life in the immigrant neighborhoods of the West side of Toronto. Like this, we don't get these jobs. We don't have these careers back then, <clears throat> but I got lucky. Um, and I think I learned a lot about work ethic from my family and watching them work, you know, that I just put the work in. It was just about work ethic. Yeah, man. I love uh Fungadelic. Eddie Hazel too, man. It's great. All right. So then when you think about that, so um, you're kind of, you're seeing that engagement, but then how does, you kind of met, you mentioned the audience, but you all you always seem to be in situations where you're. I mean, maybe not not as much in terms of the radio, but in, whenever you're on television, you're always surrounded with studio audiences. Does that 
can that be a good thing and a bad thing? Like, are there nights when like stuff, I don't know. I mean, um, stuff is kind of complicated by what the audience is kind of coming in with. Like, do you see the audience as uh, an obstacle sometimes or something, someone that you have to win over, you know, each night or does that not even, does that not even kind of register? No, no, it does. Definitely. The live studio audience is a really interesting thing. When we started our show, the talk show for the first two years, we didn't have one. Um, you know, we didn't have a studio and that was on purpose because I didn't want it to, because the, the, most talk shows, if you watch the way that the host plays it, they're playing to the audience in the room. Yeah. If I, and because a lot of them come from comedy, I wouldn't play to the audience in the room. I played to the audience at home. So I played to the couch. Mm. Right. And that was a differentiator for our show. I, now what I did was I would talk to the audience during the commercial breaks and I would stay for about 30 minutes to an hour afterwards to talk to the audience after the show, where most of the time on a talk show, I've been to the sets of a lot of them. The host doesn't really spend that much time talking to the audience, whereas I would do an hour a day, right? Every day for 10 years and over eight, the the eight years that I had the crowd. Um, So, but the, the problem is you inherently make a joke and need a response from the audience right Right. room or the joke falls flat so you have to so you do end up being aware of the audience in the room and if you don't get a crowd that's particularly engaged the fucking snow is bad outside or whatever you're dealing with you had to do a lot of inside work that would affect the tv show but nobody watching at home would even know right because you're managing it all in here so I, i i was hesitant to have a live studio audience um, cause I thought it would take away from the intimacy of the show and I wanted the intimacy with the guests. Now I think we found a sweet spot. I was, I worked with an amazing team and I think we actually, the audience never got it. The audience were always, they made the shows better, but mm-hmm. it was definitely, we had to put some heavy thought into how we did it. Yeah. I think I heard a comic say something like that. Like, um, I don't want them to hear the joke. I want them to overhear it. So, I mean, that's, that kind of stuck out. It seems kind of like a little bit of what you're saying. So then in terms of that, the hour which eventually became you know your your own show i mean it was always your own show but then it was called that i mean how did that um did you did you see that kind of i mean i can see it as an audience member but did you see that evolution i mean i guess you go from not having the studio audience that was a big component early on but do you kind of see how that went um kind of moving forward as you're getting you know certain guests like you you talk to tom cruise for instance or when you have to talk to someone like that or harrison ford and they're kind of coming in with you know whatever they i guess want to plug or whatever their agents want them to plug how do you but you're able to foster them to kind of be in the room and kind of forget about that so is that does that get a challenge like not even playing to the audience but almost playing playing around with the guest i i think you know most of the people we had were not all but a lot of them were pretty experienced like public people right and so what they do is pick up on how you are. So they would meet me and before the show, and I mean, I'm pretty casual, right? You can see how I am. Like I've always been this way. So I'm not like, I wasn't a lot like a lot of those other talk shows because I wasn't a comedian. And I was also very engaged with the guest. I also didn't have a pre-interview. So Mm -hmm. I didn't have, they didn't know what I was going to ask them. Whereas when you on other late night talk shows in the U.S. especially, there's a question and answer mostly scripted out. Yeah. More or less with most guests. There was anyway in my era. Um, yeah. I didn't have that because I often didn't know what I was going to ask. So the producers and I would frame an interview. We'd call it frame an interview. Come up with a list of things I can ask and ideas we can go with. And then I would just get into the interview and then I would just fucking flow. And, <laughs> yeah. And that that would unsettle some guests. Some guests were not built for it. They were freaked out. Um, and others were, they, they completely soared in that scenario. And my, I'm of the opinion 
you're a grown ass person. If you can't sit down and have a conversation with somebody, yeah. Yeah. then then you shouldn't be here. Because if they expected the other stuff, it meant that they thought I was their promo vehicle only. Like softballs, basically. Yeah, like I'm here just to promote their movie. No, you're here to promote your movie and I'm going to help you promote your movie because I think that's important. I want to promote your work because I want I want people to feel like there's good stuff to go watch. Sure. Yeah. But it's not about that. What I'm actually here to do is get people to believe in you as a person so they'll be with you for all your stuff, not mm-hmm. just the movie that you're pitching today. But I wanted to build this this narrative that of who the person really is and, that, and really – the idea was so that the person watching it at home, it's irrelevant who they were, the guest, and who I was. It was more about who the person was at home and the day they had. Could they pick up on some humanity? That's what I really wanted to do. So I think, you know, some guests in the very beginning were like, oh, what are we going to do? And then I'd be like, I don't know, bro. I'm going to figure it out as we go. Let's go. Yeah. You know, and then all because the real art to an interview to me is not the questions you ask, but it is the follow up questions you ask. Hmm. What did you pick up on that they said? What is the next step that you weren't planning on? Are you prepared to go where they're prepared to go? Are you prepared to lead them where you need them to go? Like that kind of stuff's really interesting to me. And so I I I think that for the most part, it didn't always work, but for the most part, when people showed up on our show on those red chairs, their publicists and others told them, look, this guy's a an experienced interview. He's interviewed everybody. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. You know, and and but bring it, but bring it. Like you gotta bring it. That's important in life too. Like I hate, I hate when I go to a party or something. I I don't really do that. I'm not that social. But if I do, um, and you're kind of talking to somebody, and it's clear that they're thinking about their response, it's like nothing worse. Like I mean, come on, what are you doing? That whereas when someone comes in like that and they have something they want to say, like whether it's their film or their project, you kind of take them out of it a little bit. It gets them in the room, and it's like they're actually a person. That probably yeah. helps sell the movie a little bit more, anyways, right? Because people totally. think, oh, they're really authentic. Totally. So, all right, were you um were you kind of you mentioned you, you don't actually have a like you didn't come from a comedic background per se, but were you influenced by that stuff at all? Because there was a lot of really great comedy. Um, I mean, SCTV and all the stuff that like Eugene Levy and all those guys, Andrew Martin. SCTV was massive to me. SCTV was absolutely massive to me. So was David Letterman, Late Night, the uh, the late show that he did on NBC the early days. So um, you could make the argument that the three biggest influences on me in terms of performance or multiple, it's Joe Strummer and Chuck D, right? Mm. For sure. But SCTV was the first time I that I I was young, remember, but I saw yeah. Canadians being doing something that I thought were better than what anybody else was doing. I thought it, I liked it more than I liked SNL, right? Even though SNL was a Canadian, yeah. which I knew at the time uh, in Lauren Michaels, but I loved SCTV and I loved David Letterman and I loved George Carlin. Yeah. So those were massive comedic influences on me. I loved Richard Pryor. Yeah. Um, I loved a lot of Phyllis Diller, mm. um, and I would listen to a lot of that shit. You know, when I was young, I listened to other comedians who are now no longer acceptable to talk about. Um, but oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like when I was a kid, Cosby was huge. Yeah. No. Right, Cosby was huge when I was a kid, and his tapes were huge. But so was Bob Newhart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved Bob Newhart, and I got to interview Bob Newhart and talk about Richard Pryor because they worked so closely yeah. together. Wow. Um, I was also heavily influenced by Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor's movies. So. You know, that era of, you know, that era, uh, that man, the 70s and the 80s, that shit was yeah. the bomb. It was the bomb, dude. Yeah. And so it all really influenced me. But Carlin, 
and SCTV and Letterman were massive influences on me. Yeah, then you mentioned Strummer. I mean, the Clash were great. I love that kind of they were so inspired. I guess it was Strummer himself, but that reggae infusion into their sound. That was like that completely changed punk, right? Yeah, my neighborhood in uh, Toronto, I lived in, I went from Rexdale to Malton. Those neighborhoods were um, beautiful in large part because of immigration from uh, the Caribbean mm. and, and specifically from Jamaica. So Jamaican music was very prevalent growing up as a kid. And punk, you know, when Don Letts was playing, started playing those punk records, you know, at the clubs in London before, I mean, I wasn't there, obviously, but that, that the punk kids loved the you know, one of the things I talked to Let's about years later was that they didn't have anything in common per se, but they recognized the fight in each other's lives. They recognized the struggles. And they and so there was a commonality there, not the same, but a commonality or a thread at the very least that you could bring the two together. So reggae and punk were always connected in my life. Because remember, I listened to, I got into punk mostly influenced by what was happening in England mm -hmm. before I, I got into what was in New York. Of course, you know, the Ramones and the New York Dolls were huge to me, of course, and Johnny Thunders became one of my favorites. But when I was in Toronto, there was a lot of heavy influence from the UK. So uh, the Sex Pistols yeah, yeah. and the Clash yeah. were huge to us. Yeah. And then also with them, because um, punk, like when I think about like Black Flag um, or, or like kind of bands like that, there are certain bands that are like kind of a little bit noisy. Right. I mean, they definitely want to make a point. It's almost like this yeah. rebel fire that they're kind of. But then when you look at um, when you look at the pistols, I mean, I felt like their stuff was almost um, it was melodic a little bit like that anarchist song. I mean, there's a lot of melody in that. Do you think that's do you think that was something that um, like the kind of punks um, adopted and they felt like this is really cool? Or did they do you feel like other bands, especially coming up after that, uh, like in the late 70s, like, I don't know, the Dead Kennedys and, and stuff yeah. like that. Do you feel like, oh, like they're not they're not really cool because they're trying to be kind of for, um, you know, they're trying to be too melodic? No, I, I never. I mean, I mean, I think I think that there was a wave of Southern California uh, punk that was a little bit more like the Descendants. You know mm. that. You know, maybe there were people who felt that not that they were too melodic because you, remember the Ramones were heavily melodic, and yeah. so the Ramones were like throwback fifties band in a way, um, and certainly some of their influences. So the Ramones were pop in their in their DNA, the structure of the songs. And the the Sex Pistols were definitely a reaction to what was happening politically and musically in, in in England, but they were simpler. They were, I think, they were not doing that prog rock shit that was going on. Yeah. Um, but they were still songs. Like, they were still songs. Yeah. You know, the first band that I heard that challenged the notion of a song was Crass. I heard Crass, and that really influenced me because I thought, oh my god, punk could be something else. But to me, punk was still songs. <laughs> they were songs. So Bad Religion, I think, were a great yeah. mix of songs, but also message. You know, so I never really felt like you know the pop punk stuff that came later. A lot of the crusty old G OG punks had issues with it for sure because yeah. it didn't feel like it had the message, but it was definitely there. You've talked to a lot of bands um, and musicians. I mean, you've talked to Rush, you've talked to Beastie Boys, you've talked to Foo Fighters, um, it, which is really sad. I mean, what just happened with Taylor not not too long ago, and I felt like he was he was kind of like glue, like him and Dave. I mean, Dave's great, but he was. I mean, his drumming is it makes that band. 
Um, when you when you think about that, are there kind of bands that you've talked to? Um, I mean, I don't know. I know the Beasties were kind of an in interesting combination of like, are they punk? Are they rap? Are they what are they? They're something completely new. But were there was there is there a band that kind of comes to mind in terms of someone that that you felt like really got it in a way that you felt like you really connected with and you got something out of um, you know as much as kind of dated from the experience? I, I connected greatly, luckily, with Joe Strummer um, mm. and uh, and Al Jorgensen from Ministry. Um, those are really important bands to me. I had great times with Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails and Dave yeah. Grohl is is incredible. Dave Grohl, I love so much. Stone from Pearl Jam, same thing. Uh, Patty Smith. Yeah. was another one that I felt really close to. Uh, but I don't think anybody, like the truth is, man, when I'm 12 years old, I'm listening to 12 and 13 years old, I'm listening to almost exclusively to three bands, four. I'm listening to The Clash and Led Zeppelin. Yeah, But I'm also in music that was like mine from my era, not from slightly before me, um, was The Beastie Boys and Metallica. And so those first four Metallica records and then Slayer, that like that to me, Beastie Boys and Metallica to me became church, you know, yeah. in a way that I was devotional to them. And my time with the guys in Metallica, like with the guys in Metallica, I've always been really, I felt like really connected to the, a lot of that stuff. And now Robert in the band is such a great dude, right? He's such a great player. I love yeah. suicidal tendencies. Yeah. So because yeah. because Metallica were, even though they're clearly heavy music and metal, they were really influenced by punk. You know, I remember seeing them with Misfits t-shirts on, Cliff Burton wearing a Misfits t-shirt. That's a real thing. And, you know, Kirk Hammett wearing horror movie shirts. And like, you're seeing all of our interests come together in one thrash band, you know, yeah. um, punk and metal and something new. But Beastie Boys, man, were, I mean, they were everything. Yeah, when I heard Intergal Intergalactic, I feel like my whole yeah. life was changed. You're talking about all the, the bands that kind of shape you. Metallica, you talk about Robert um, and kind of all that stuff. But um, I guess... Well, I guess that's a kind of a good transition in terms of um, your latest, your gig right now, right, uh, Strombo. Um, or actually, we we got to talk about one thing real quick. Um, you talked to you talked to Larry King on your CNN show. That was great. Yeah, I've been that times, was a yeah. huge influence, huge influence on my life. I remember I saw that live whenever you know when that happened. It was great. Um, did you get something out of him? Like, was he, you mentioned Letterman was big. Was he yeah. someone that you kind of looked up to or someone that, you yeah. know, kind of really supported you? No, in a really yeah. big way. So yeah, I'm glad you brought him up. Um, Larry King, um, Larry King was, if you know, that CNN show yeah. that he did um, when I was young, when I was watching him, he was a radio guy talking to people on TV. Yeah, I really, that's kind of what I see as my whole career has been. Yeah, Larry and I got along really well. Like Larry was always good to me, very, very helpful, very, you know, very, <clears throat> I felt with Larry that I, I understood a different level of performance watching him work. Same with Barbara Walters, same with Oprah. Mm. But Larry was just like, Larry was edgy. You know, I, yeah. I, he was a big influence. And I was so grateful to be on his show when he had his show. Um, uh, uh, he had me on as a guest and it was oh, amazing. Yeah across from him did he did he like have any free time that guy is always i mean he does larry king live for like 25 years and then he goes to that i mean he goes to that um that show and then he's yeah. in all these ads for all yeah. these like random he never stops he never stopped man he and never losing, stopped i guess yeah stopped yeah, yeah 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 losing was a big one um yeah larry was pretty major man pretty major yeah. to me um he also just was like him you know he was very authentic he's kind of like cronkite in a way yeah you know, well, 
you have to be, you have to know who you are and figure out which version of you you want to present. You know, some people don't want to get the real them on the air, but the Larry that I knew off camera was the Larry I saw on. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know, so he, he was hyper curious. Yeah. Super curious guy. Um, so kind of as we get to Strombo, um, because this you've been on, you're not a um, stranger to radio. You've done it basically throughout your whole whole life. I mean, your whole um, sort of working life. How does how does this experience compare? I mean, I guess you have, you know, a ton more listeners. You have this huge platform uh, that Apple has provided. Have you had a good experience working with Apple? Yeah, it is a good experience. You know, I um, uh, there's a couple things. Uh, number one, the people who created it love music and want to share music and Apple music, a core part of their business is just that the yeah. song. Right? So there's a hundred million plus songs in that library. So I have a lot to choose from, you know, <laughs> um, which is great. And I love a lot of music, obviously most genres. Um, so that part of it musically is great. Uh, I love the fact that it's on a streamer so that we're not, um, I don't, I'm not playing commercials. Yeah. Which I really like that. We're not playing commercials. Um, and I love that our show is algorithm free. You know, we pick the songs like we pick the songs. Most radio stations, the songs are picked for you, not yeah. us. We pick the songs. And, you know, I don't make it as crazy as all my musical taste because it's still a public platform. Right. Um, but but I I I definitely, you know, I, we loosely plan a show. Well, we put a lot of work in every show and then I go do it live. Like I'm going to head there after we talk and um, I'm just going to put it together and see what happens, you yeah. know. I really like that part of it. You know, we're like, see what happens. Let's see. You're like, uh, you're like, just like a lifelong improviser, right? You got to just kind of go with the flow. And that it seems like that's definitely geared to your personality and definitely works. Well, um, I really, really appreciate you talking to you, man. This was awesome. I love the stuff that you've done. Um, obviously, obviously all the shows, but on Strombo, um, like the specials that you did on Wilco, title and i love fiona apple she's one of my sure. favorite artists and then also nevermind and then all those like those hundreds of punk playlists that you basically made um i think it's great and you know, it was a pleasure I, to talk to you you too yeah. man you too thank you and you know that 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 apple show is there's a woman called yeah. raquel a woman called emmy a woman called yasmin and a guy called bob bob i've worked with for 25 years my best friend so that crew like we gather and we genuinely care about the shit we play like we really do um, if you ever watch the live streams that we're doing the show, like I will change the song that I'm going to play next within four seconds before I have to play it because it's like, no, no, I'm feeling it. I've got to go this way. You know, yeah. it's like, take it all super seriously, man. And, and so I'm glad that you like it. And yeah, those playlists are super fun to put together. Emmy puts some me, Bob, Raquel. it's just madness. Yeah. It's madness. Yeah. yeah. That's all. Well, is, so is it freezing kind of where you are in Canada or is it? Is I'm it actually in LA now. So, but it's oh, chilly. You're in LA. I'm in LA. Yeah. It's chilly here. Where are you? I'm in New York. Where in New York? Where Why in New York? Of Which part of the oh, where in New York? Man Manhattan, Washington yeah. Heights. Uh, I have uh, oh nice. I have Washington Heights. Yeah, nice. Isn't that where um? Is that that's where, where the, uh, Immortal Techniques from? Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, and Lin Manuel uh, Miranda. Yeah, Lin -Manuel, yeah. Right, Dude, I love Immortal Technique, man. I love Immortal. When I heard Technique. "Dance with the Devil," my life was changed forever. Amazing. I mean, that story, I man. I have an apartment in the East Village, so I'm at first and eleventh. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, that place where you saw the Beastie Boys interview, that was in my apartment there. I'm going to be there for the holidays. I can't wait to get back. I'm All right, well, thanks thanks so much, man. I really appreciate talking to you, and I uh, hope you have a good uh, good time in L.A. Brother, I appreciate your time today, man. Thank you so much.
trunk of a car Beneath a stack of legal documents